Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello out there. Hey, listen, before we get started, I'm sick, so you're going to hear uh, my voice and whatever. I'm not crying this whole time like I was at the end of the last episode, just so you know. I'm just sick. All right, so here we go. Hey, you want a party? Okay, cool. Put on this fluorescent vest and line up on either side of me. Now here's the deal. We're going to walk straight into this patch of forest ahead of us, and whoever finds a dead child wins. And that's a search party. It's the worst party ever. It's almost always for a kid. Smoke some weed, pop some acid. Oh, man, can you imagine searching for a missing child out in the woods on weed, man? That's a half-baked reference, and by that I don't mean my reference is half-thought out. Half-baked is a late 90s stoner movie. Anyways, I shouldn't have dropped acid before this episode. Maybe a couple of nips from this flask will help us go into the woods and look for this little child. This possibly dead child. Probably dead child. Anyone else want a couple of nips from this flask? Here, pass these joints around. It makes me nervous. Scouring a riverbank for a bloated body. Flipping forest furniture like a filthy old mattress or a bush party sofa. For the chance to uncover a nightmare scene that will haunt me for the rest of my lifetime. You know, it might sound cool to a sicko like you or I, a search party, but it's not. I've done a couple of them. It's not. I mean, on paper or on a podcast, it's easy to picture yourself strapping on a party hat and grabbing a poking stick. But in reality, searching for a missing person, a missing child, is terrifying. Especially if there's a murder involved. Because in that case... The odds are in favor of the killer being part of the search, which is a total bummer, man. Aren't you glad you hit that joint? Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. Have you hugged your kids today? Uh -uh. September 9th, 1950, St. Clair Shores, Michigan. Eight-year-old Joey Housie, a cute little boy with dark hair and olive complexion, bright eyes, and even brighter smile, is playing with a headlamp. That's uh, something off the front of a, an old car. And this was a newer headlamp, and it was all kind of hooked up, so he's flicking it on and off, marveling at the power in his hands around dusk. Again, it's 1950, so kids found fun wherever they could. Unfortunately for young Joey, there's a 15-year-old neighborhood kid, a big brute named John McRae, out looking for fun as well this early September evening. The headlamp's flickering light draws the budding sadists like a seizure to little Joey. And before either boy really understands what's happening, Joey Housie is being sexually assaulted in the woods of a nearby lover's lane. Back then, doing gay stuff was horrific on its own, but doing it to a kid? Simply monstrous. Not that it isn't today, you know, molesting kids. It's monstrous. And not that gay stuff is any worse than hetero stuff when it comes to abuse. 
Well, I mean, all right. I mean, if you if you're not, I mean, if you're a child. Anyways, never mind. I'm on acid. Give me a break here. <laughs> and if you're wondering why I fuck around so much in my podcast, part of it is that I'm an asshole. I'd like to make it difficult for higher end podcasts, and I don't mean like quality wise, but ones that have like a lot of listeners can't steal my shit because they just get sick of it and they walk away. Oh, he said something fucked up. I can't do that because my audience won't like that. And I need a big audience and I need to put out two podcasts a fucking week. So I need to find somebody who just gives me the straight facts so I can steal them and rough it up and make it look like my own. Fucking junkies. Fucking with their favorite murders. McCray learns a lot about himself this day. He likely already knew that he had disturbing sexual urges, attractions, uh, dark fantasies to little boys. But until he got one alone and actually began the molesting, he didn't know that there was so much more depth to the darkness within him. McCray pulls out a paring knife, a dull thing, and begins slashing his victim with it. There's a focus on the genitals, but this elicits too much noise from the child. So he clumsily finishes Joey off by cutting his wrists and throat before picking up a rock and bludgeoning the little boy to death. There's a picture of this child in the show notes, in the sources. Uh, findagrave.com, Joey Housie, so you can see this sweet little boy who had this done to him. If you like, John McRae, at 15 years old, commits a crime that should delete his existence. As he stuffs his victim under a rogue piece of cement, maybe part of an old foundation out in the woods, he should be evaporated by a bolt of lightning but the surrounding trees seem indifferent, though the breeze whispers through their dying leaves with a tone of conspiracy. And when McRae reaches home, the birds are calling their babies to nest, and soon Joey's mother will be doing the same. John McRae thinks it's fun being part of the search party. All this fuss over something he did, the thrill of the secret is no match for the hunt, the rape, the torture, the killing but it serves as an extension of it. A way to draw it all out. John McRae can't help but insert himself into the case when the buzz begins to fade. Weeks into the search, he is the one to find the headlamp, drawing attention to himself and the area of the murder, and soon someone spots Joey nearby the find. It is said that the murdered boy's hand is poking out from under the piece of concrete, a silver Boy Scout ring glittering in the sunlight. 15-year-old John McRae becomes a suspect. He's a known bully and troublemaker. He's weird. He's a little too giddy about the whole situation. When McRae's father hears his son is under suspicion, he confronts his boy, a boy he knows to take too much pleasure in the unsavory aspects of hunting, say, and who has always stared at his younger cousins in a predatory fashion. He knows his boy is responsible, is convinced when John tells his father he had a dream where he was the one who killed Joey. Get the fuck out of here, McRae's father says to him. You did this shit. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go down to the lake, and you're going to swim to Canada. If you did this, you're going to swim to Canada. So that's what the 15-year-old does. He disappears. He leaves his mother a note. His mother uh, was Joey Housie's school teacher. He leaves her a note. It reads, quote, I want you to know I had nothing to do with the housey boy, Mom. I love you, 
and I've caused you too much trouble. When authorities come to take the McRae's boy for a polygraph, they discover he's gone. He's run away. The father's like, I told him to swim across to Canada. Maybe that's what he did. I don't know. Maybe I did drop him off right there, and he did get in the water, and he started to swim. So maybe that's what happened. A search of the boy's bedroom yields the paring knife. Its bloody blade will match the ragged wounds inflicted on Joey Housie. He did it, you know? And um, even though the father claims that his advice to the boy was not meant to be taken literally, John McRae does swim across to Canada anyways. Well, almost. It's too far. And he returns to shore after nearly drowning. He then steals a boat and makes it to Sarnia, Ontario, where he soon makes contact with his uncle, who shortly thereafter contacts the parents, who contact police, and eventually the 15-year-old killer is brought in. Long story short. McRae confesses to the crime. He will give no reason for the rape, torture, and murder of this sweet little boy. He'll only say, quote, I'm disgusted. That's all. John McRae is tried as an adult and is sentenced to life in prison without parole. And back in 1950, everyone was okay with that. They would have preferred he fried in the electric chair, but life in prison at 15 is a pretty solid punishment. Unfortunately, the times would change. And by 1971, the model prisoner, who had completed all kinds of sexual deviancy rehabilitation, was considered for release. McRae, at the age of 36, is allowed to walk free, which I doubt anyone involved back in 1950 thought would be his fate when they said, life without the possibility of being freed. But he is. You know, they would have strung him up had they known that life without the possibility of parole actually meant life without the chance to hurt little boys for 20 years, then go hurt as many as you can for the next 30, which is what happened. Spoiler alert. He soon gets married after being released. He has a baby boy named Martin. And once his probation is up in 1976, McRae, now 40, relocates his family to Florida, where he applies to become a prison guard at a juvenile detention facility full of young men. He is accepted for the position of prison guard at Brevard Correctional in uh someplace in Florida. And I could go on about how crazy that is, but we all know the score. It's the 70s, man. And John McRae plans on making the most of it. April 28th, 1977. Cocoa Beach, Florida. 14-year-old Keith Fleming. A good-looking kid with long blonde hair, tan skin, and a fit body from surfing catches the attention of McRae who would often frequent the beach and watch young guys surf. Keith goes missing while hitchhiking, and his body is never found. John McRae is questioned because he lives a short distance from where Keith Fleming is last seen. It is widely believed he fell victim to McRae, Fleming dead. McRae, a sexual sadist, a homicidal maniac who showed no remorse while in prison for his earliest crime other than that he should have kept his mouth shut about the housey boy. That's true. About the only regret John McRae showed while in prison for those 20 or so years to prison doctors was that he couldn't keep his mouth shut. If he had kept his mouth shut, then he wouldn't have gone to prison. Keep my fucking mouth shut next time. Also, I gotta bury the body better. What was I thinking? Just dumping it underneath a piece of concrete in the woods. Here's the headlamp. Oh shit, there's the body. 
It's fucking stupid, John. Next time, we're going to have a good time with it, you know? We're going to think a little bit ahead of time. And then, you know what we're going to do, John? <sighs> we're going to bury them 20 feet underground so I'll never fucking find them. That's how these guys think, dude. It's fun. We're going to figure it out so we can keep on keeping on. Nobody knew he was out there. Nobody knew that McRae had been released from prison. The Housie family was not informed their son's killer had been released. And Florida residents um, did not know that this maniac from Michigan had entered their state. This killer of boys in his prime, his 40s. I say his prime, you know, maybe not physically, but, you know, mentally you are. And as a sadistic killer, I mean, around 40s when you really start to fucking make things happen, you know? You've learned your lessons, you know what you like, you know what you don't like, you know what you gotta do and don't do. You know, he walked among them, swinging a baton, issued by the state prison system. Remember, he's a prison guard now, too. He's got that big swinging fucking dick aspect to him. He had quite the advantage with his position of authority. And in mid-March of 1979, he'd use it to steal 12-year-old Kip Hess of Merritt Island, Florida. By this point, McRae's son, Martin, who was just a little boy, was likely being used as yet another way for McRae to get close to young men. While working security for a carnival, McRae spots Kip Hess with his Boy Scout troop and uses his son, Martin, to bait Kip away. McRae builds rapport over the next hour or so while Kip plays with McRae's son. It is said that John McRae loved the carnival scene and would sometimes dress as a clown to entertain neighborhood kids. And you've probably never heard of McRae, maybe because of this aspect. I mean, you could only really have one killer clown, right? Two. I mean, you got Pennywise, the fictional character, and then you have uh, John Wayne Gacy. But uh, this guy was a clown killer as well. It is also said that McRae kept a jar full of young boy penises and testicles as mementos from his untold number of murders. But there's really no proof of that other than a uh, prison snitch saying that McRae shared that information with him, which I believe. So with this second disappearance of a boy in Florida since uh, McRae lands there, like with the surfer boy, McRae manages to make Kip Hess disappear. At least we assume it's McRae. It's fucking McRae. It is initially thought that the youngster may have run away as he left a note for his parents on the morning he vanished. Uh, that was March 27th of 1979. The note read, quote, Goodbye, Mom and Dad. End quote. Was this just a sweet boy leaving a sweet note for his parents? Or is it as creepy as it sounds? Did McRae coach the boy to leave a note so as to make it seem like he'd run away. The preteen never made it to school that morning, and no trace was ever found of him. See, my son is 12, like Kip was, and he just said goodbye to me as he left for school. They don't just disappear. It's not that easy. They're taken, and most often they're put through hell, a confusing, disgusting, painful, terrifying, desperate kind of hell, experienced at the highest level, by the young and innocent, especially a 12-year-old. I bring up my son here because he's still a kid, but he thinks he's a grown-up now. I don't know, because he's got hair underneath his arms? A little bit, tiny bit, couple sprigs, and his voice is changing a bit, and he's taller, right? He thinks he's, he's older, and he thinks he can hang with the big boys, right? But 
he is still a kid. And to take advantage of a kid of that age is the worst. The fucking worst. They're just so easy to fucking trick. They they want to fit in. They want to be cool. And then I'm assuming once they get a kid like my child, 12-year-old, into their van and back to their trailer and they pull out the fucking knives and start chasing them around dressed in a clown outfit and then they actually start stabbing them and jamming out the genitals and fucking prolonging the pain and raping them and all that. <laughs> Doing this, I have to imagine my own son in that situation and I don't think he'd like it very much. I can, I can almost... I don't want to picture it. But it's as, it's as bad as it fucking gets, man. And to, to not have mercy on that child. Anyways, let me move ahead here. I mean, it's fucking got to be bad for everybody, doesn't it? I, I'm just thinking about my own situation. God, imagine my younger son. He's five and all that. Holy shit. Fuck, I wish I didn't take acid for this. <laughs> Anyways, for one capable of taking a child, then pushing through their pleas for mercy as they're hurt, ignoring their cries for their mother, destroying them. There's only one solution, in my opinion, for those perpetrators. You gotta execute these sexually sadistic child killers. They won't rehabilitate. They'll uh, rehabituate. Rehabituate? Is that a word? They'll get better at hiding, basically. It's like trying to pray away gay. You can't do it. It's what they are. Not that there's any correlation between being gay and killing kids. A lot of hetero people kill kids too, you know. I was just looking for an example. God damn it. This is the last time that I do rainbow acid. Can you tell us this is funny because I'm so fucked up on acid? I don't think this is funny at all. Sorry. Is there an advertisement? Want to learn a new language? Well, then Rosetta Stone is for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. It has fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process. It helps you pick up language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's designed for long-term Retention, Rosetta Stone is. They have the speech recognition feature, built-in true accent. It gives you feedback in your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. There's an amazing value with Rosetta Stone. A lifetime membership, all 25 languages, and offered here for 50% off. It's a real steal. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today. There was a search party. And of course, John McRae was part of it. It's said that McRae was so fascinated in the disappearance of Kip Hess that he kept the forever 12-year-old's missing poster in his work locker at the prison. Speaking of the prison, the juvenile prison for boys that this boy killer worked at as a guard, it probably comes as no surprise that McRae was taking advantage of his position and was rumored to be sexually assaulting inmates 
One young man, 18-year-old Charles Collingwood, became an issue for McRae when other guards and inmates started talking about their inappropriate relationship. And Collingwood, who was serving a four-year sentence for car theft, began blackmailing McRae, which was troublesome. McRae's solution was to assist Collingwood in an escape, serving as the getaway driver for him, and he never got caught for this. Though Charles Collingwood did not get his reward of being busted out because he was murdered uh, in horrific fashion, we assume. You know, he was never seen or heard from again. That's three missing boys associated with McRae by early 1980, not to mention an eight-year-old who was murdered by McRae back in 1950. And Florida investigators were on to him. When McRae is questioned about his connection to the disappearances, because he has a connection to all three of these disappearances, he packs up his family and flees Florida. McRae returns to Michigan, where he begins raising goats on a patch of land in Clare County, outside of Harrison, where nobody really knows him. He manages to stay off the radar, living in a trailer with his wife and son. Occasionally, he makes his way into town, especially when the carnival visits. It's not unusual for a few young men to go missing any time a carnival rolls through a town. There's always work on the carnival circuit. Those employed to rig up the rides and park at patrons to part with their cash on rigged-up games are from all over the country. Misfits of America. And perfect targets for a man like McRae. In the fall of 87, a Harrison boy named Randy Laufer vanishes after school. His sister, whom Randy was very close with, watched from the school bus as Randy walked away to supposedly stay over at a friend's house. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Randy was a slight boy at 5'3 and weighing 100 pounds. He'd be hard to miss walking alone this day, wearing short beige shorts with a red symbol on them. He had high socks, you know, the white ones with the blue and red stripes at the top. Those beauties from the 80s. He'd be hard to miss in any other time but the 80s, actually, when it was perfectly normal for a skinny kid to walk around in shorts that were half bathing suit, half saggy underwear, socks pulled high in a feeble attempt to cover the shame of it all. I was one of those kids. What is that? You, what, are you, what, are you, what are you wearing your underwear? That's all the kids talked to. They stuttered a lot and they had lisps. What are you wearing your underwear? I, I grew up in uh, New Jersey as well. Randy is upset with his parents for denying him permission to get his hunter's safety certificate. This, along with the carnival packing up and moving along from Harrison at this time, makes for slow going and concluding Randy had been kidnapped when he doesn't arrive at school the following day. It turns out there were no friends who'd agreed to have Randy spend the night. Even more concerning, Randy is last spotted downtown in a gray van. The driver may be dressed like a clown, Randy waves proudly to the townsfolk as he's whisked away into the country. He's maybe excited to have found a friend to be in the front seat, like a cool kid. Witnesses recall a bumper sticker on the van that reads, quote, Have you hugged your kids today? How brazen. John McRae, kidnapper, sadistic raper, and killer of young men, torturer, returns to his home state to lay low after treating Florida like a boy buffet, and as soon as he gets an easy opportunity, he's at it again. It turns out John McRae's son, Martin, now a teenager, had befriended Randy, and Randy had been to the trailer a few times. 
Also, John McRae and his wife were involved in the local 4-H club, a youth development organization where the couple dressed as clowns to entertain kids on the weekends and fucking days off, I guess. In the months leading to his vanishing, Randy had been driven to the 4-H club by McRae in his kidnapper van with a creepy bumper sticker. But no one's paying attention because it's the fucking 80s and uh, nobody seems to know McRae's history Nobody thinks it's fucking weird that a guy who likes to dress up as a clown is driving kids around in a kidnapper van that says, have you hugged your kids a day on the back of it? I don't fucking know what's going on here. Um, and nobody thinks to look for Randy at the creepy compound outside town where McCray lives, where Randy is to be terrorized and raped and perhaps have his genitals ripped off to be thrown in a jar before being buried just outside the McCray trailer with help from his so-called friend, Martin, who is being groomed in his father's image. Who knows what the involvement of McRae's wife and son was in Randy Lawford's brutal death, but it appears that they may have been complicit in this murder. It seems we have a backwoods horror story on our hands, a place where 15-year-old Randy went from feeling relief and being accepted to feeling doom and terror and pain and desperation. McRae would have eaten a boy like Randy alive sucking the soul out of this sweet boy who loved his sister and his pets. Though McRae is satiated, he will be supplied a special treat weeks later. Milk cartons in his fridge with Randy Laufer's face on them that he drains greedily, no doubt. As fate would have it, as it usually has it, it showed up late. A Florida investigator contacts Harrison PD only months after Randy Laufer's high-profile disappearance and shares that they've been searching for a one John McRae and they've received information that he may be in the Harrison-Clare County area of Michigan. A team of officers are sent to the McRae farm where they find the trailer deserted. Inside, they discover missing posters depicting the three lost Florida boys. And of course, they find milk cartons with Randy Laufer smiling woodenly at them. It doesn't take long for the McCrays to be tracked to Mesa, Arizona. John McCray is brazen in his police interrogation, stating, quote, I was convicted once when they found the body. You think I'd let that happen again? End quote. His van, which now displays two bumper stickers, the first being this episode's title, and the second seeming to further mock this incredible case. It's like McRae knows he's on a free pass here. He doesn't give a fuck. He's just letting it rip. Quote, don't let your child go with strangers. End quote. That's the other bumper sticker. <laughs> this is a kidnapper van. It's straight up kidnapper van. Picture it. That's the one that has a bumper sticker that says, don't let your child go with strangers. And it says, uh, have you hugged your kids today? McRae's quintessential kidnapper van is thoroughly examined, and though there is blood of different types found on a rag and a filthy blanket in the van, it doesn't match Randy Laufer. It's some other kids he's killed and ripped their penises off and put them in a jar and buried them 50 feet underneath the ground. Bloodhounds are brought to the old haunt in Harrison, but they find nothing, and the case against McRae goes cold until a decade later when the new owners of Randy Laufer's murder site decide to start farming the land and accidentally unearth him while digging up the old driveway. 
It's a skeleton wearing white tube socks. You know, the ones with the red and blue stripes at the top. They got rope wrapped around him. And he's, well, the skeleton is wearing beige short shorts with a little red symbol on him. The remains are quickly identified to be that of Randy Loff. Oh, wait, his pelvis is all stabbed up, like a K-bar-style knife has slashed so deeply into him, had slashed so deeply into him when his attacker was attacking his 15-year-old generals uh, that it pierced to the point where it's it actually um, scraped the pelvic bone multiple times. Where was I? The remains are quickly identified to be that of Randy Laufer, and John McRae, now 63, is swiftly arrested in Arizona. His son Martin is taken in too, under suspicion of having helped his father kidnap and bury Randy. Martin is 23 at this time. The two are extradited to Michigan, where a judge immediately throws the son's case out, as he would have been a 13-year-old at the time of the crime, a juvenile who by law could not be held accountable for any pressure put on him by his father at the time if these crimes did indeed happen. So he just throws it out. And the investigators are frustrated by this as they hope Martin can be used as leverage against his father. But they can't do that now. Martin will be in custody soon enough for molesting his daughter, which is unrelated, but shows that he's a fucking piece of shit like his dad. Uh, and he's been groomed as such, but still, you molested your daughter and your own there. Maybe dad got a piece too, you never know. I mean, there's a lot of fucking strange um, silence and, and, and not strange. There's a lot of secret secretiveness in this. I don't know about the mother, what she was up to. To me, it feels like a total Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I mentioned earlier, a style family. Um, where they're doing all this depraved shit and they all kind of cheer each other on behind the scenes. I've met families like this. You're walking and they're all racist, you know? Or they're all uh, talking openly sexual. Uh, the mother and the father talking about their sex life and asking about, like, the daughters and she's talking about or she blows her husband in front of there's kids walking around and shit with droopy diapers. Ugh. I've been around this. This is a jar fucking in the spice rack that has penises and fucking nuts in it and you're on acid when you're there it's fucking brutal anyways martin uh fucking mccray here he'll be in prison for a shameful crime of molesting his own daughter when his father is convicted in the randy Laffer case and when the diabolical john mccray dies in 2005 from complications related to a stomach ulcer perhaps all the secrets he'd swallowed over a lifetime had eaten him away Though I doubt that men like this feel any guilt at all. Two questions to finish off on here. First, how did the cadaver dogs miss a freshly buried body on the McRae property? Well, John McRae had goats, and it's thought that he had them pissing and shitting all over Randy's grave, which possibly covered the scent. It's kind of neat, huh? Good to know. Um, I don't know if that's been proven that that, that works. But that's what they say. That's what they say happened here. The goat piss and shit threw the dogs off. And one more quick and dirty tip. Bury them deep. And the last question uh, today, I guess, would have to be, have you hugged your kids today? And then I'll do it. Uh, meandering 
fucked up episode, which uh, has been kind of my thing lately, where I try to act like I didn't really try, and I've tried really hard. So just know, I tried. I don't sound like I tried, but I tried. For more Dark Topic, visit patreon.com slash darktopic, or if you listen on Apple, check out Dark Topic Plus. You can do three days free of Dark Topic Plus and rip me off for all the available content if you binge it. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'm doing pretty good. I stopped smoking. I've been smoking this vape pen, which is like not as stinky, which is good. It doesn't make my throat hurt as much, which is good. People are like, oh, you're going to get popcorn lung. I'm like, hey, I was smoking three packs of cigarettes in a row when I do this, this stuff with the podcast. I, I smoke three, three, four packs of cigarettes in a row. So I'll order the popcorn lung over the black lung. It's the nicotine. I thought that it was the action of smoking, but it's the nicotine that I like. Imagine that. Nicotine's addictive. Did you know that? Fuck, I didn't know that. And did you know what makes you feel addicted to it isn't just flat addiction, whatever addiction means. This is what addiction means when it comes to cigarettes and it comes to nicotine. It makes me feel focused. It makes me feel like I'm in control. It gets rid of all the mental illness for a little bit. And it makes me hone in. That's my reasoning for being addicted to nicotine. It's like, hey, you're stupid. You're addicted to the nicotine. That's why you're smoking cigarettes. Hey, you're stupid. You don't realize that the nicotine is giving me something. Hey, you're stupid. You're addicted to crack. Yeah, but you're a smoked crack. It makes all your fucking problems go away. That's why I smoke it. I don't just do these things. Addicts don't just do these things because they're stupid. They do it because they're looking to escape something. And if mine's nicotine and I can find a vape pen that'll get rid of a lot of the things that fucking might cause me to die, thank you. What's this thing called? Ghost? Ghost pen. Thank you, ghost pen, not sponsored. For now, you're my new friend. Anyways, I'm doing pretty good. I hope you're good too. Mentally, I'm good, but I've been sick for a month, and I share this not forget well soon letters, but because it's weird. It may be fun to talk about at the end here. And check this out. In mid-November, I had a cold that felt like the C word, you know, rhymes with blobid, but it wasn't. And um, it was followed up by a stomach flu that forced me to buy a whole new wardrobe, a new bed, a new chair. You know, you get it. I was shitting my pants and barfing down the front of my shirts. That happened to me on a plane once. Shit, uh, shitting down the front of my shirt happened, yeah. Barfing down the front of my shirt. Charlie, our youngest, uh, he was a baby at the time. He drank too much breast milk because we kept on like, well, my girl kept on being like, let's keep feeding him breast milk because we, to keep him from crying, I guess. <laughs> and uh, he got all green in the gills and then he went to puke. So I opened the top of my T-shirt and let it rain all in my clothes. I think I mentioned that before. You know, it's like, excuse me, stewardess, um, when will we be landing? And she's like, 45 minutes. I'm like, okay, perfect, thanks. Hey, listen, do these windows open? Because all this old fucking breast milk down my chest and seeping into my underwear, coating my nuts, stinks. Anyways, where was I? I was shitting my pants. A surefire way to dispel any mystique about yourself while endearing yourself as a human to people <laughs> is to admit you shit yourself at some time. Even make it up. Just be like, you know, if you're ever trying to win someone over, incredibly the answer is to tell them that you shit yourself. 
you know, maybe not relationship wise, but friend wise, people wise, they're like, hey, how you been? And you're kind of uncomfortable around the person. Maybe you want them to like you or something. You're like, hey, I'm not the best. You know, I shit myself yesterday. Instantly, you just won them over. You got a compadre because people like being around those who don't threaten them. And there's no threat in a loser who shits their pants and admits it. Other than extending a hand to shake because there might be shit on it. Anyways, I'm on acid. So so I get that. I'm not on acid. I'm just sick. So I, I kept on saying that for some reason. I don't know. I'm stupid. I'm having I'm a little overloaded with um, cold medication. I'm just excited to be out, you know. I'm just excited to be talking to people by myself in my studio, smoking this fucking vape pen. So anyways, I get done with the stomach thing. And then I get a sinus infection followed by bronchitis. And I guess I'm just going for the record here for how many sicknesses you can have in a row. It seems there's more, you know, of everything lately. There's more weather, more sickness, more violence, more discourse. I don't know if that's just like more um, exposure to media that makes it seem like it's more, but it does. It, it does. It actually seems like more. There's more babies like me whining about it for sure. You know, puking down your top when you're just trying to enjoy the ride here the end of this fucking episode lettuce costs 10 bucks here do you know that three romaines three romaine heads in a bag cost 10 bucks that's something to talk about and they still got gooey leaves on the outside which will kill you those gooey leaves forget the rest you know all the fucking sickness and the violence and the and the weather and all that shit eat a gooey leaf from a bag of 10 dollar romaine i'm thinking about starting up a restaurant that serves nothing but gooey salad and call it Sam and Ellis. And suddenly I think I'm a fucking uh, comedian podcaster. What a gig that is. Imagine being brilliant enough just to, just to ramble like this. And that's, that's all you got to do like twice a week. And you act like you're working hard. But you're just utilizing your talent. That'd be fucking great. Okay, enough uh, chit chat. And not to research and like write. And then destroy it by acting like an asshole about it the whole time. Thanks for listening. I'm working with my good buddy Dead Rick. Fred Diedrich is his real name from Iron Bean Coffee Company. I came up with the name Dead Rick because I think I'm funny now. Diedrich, Dead Rick, uh, it's no Mr. Ballin or Mr. Beast, but we like it. We're working to morph Dark Topic episodes into a YouTube channel where Dead Rick will host. It's called Subhuman. If you want to get ahead and subscribe, there's nothing up there yet, but that's been fun to uh, prepare for so far. Uh, Fred Dead Rick is, is a real character, a really interesting guy, a, a really good guy. Uh, check out his coffee company, Iron Bean Coffee Company. If you want some coffee, give him some business. He's, he's, he's an incredible guy, and you'll see that. You'll see that coming soon. I'll, I'll let you know once the, uh, the, the YouTube channel's up. I continue to do my extra content with Deadbug. Oh, sorry, I should say a little bit more about that, just to be very clear. He's going to take scripts, old scripts from Dark Topic, kind of morph them into his own so I will be the the writer researcher because I've done the writing and the research on those past episodes make it into his own and do all the YouTube shit that happens I've always wanted to do a YouTube channel but um, I'm, I'm I don't think I'm uh, I'm ugly as shit how about that I'm not ugly but I'm not like you know who you think I am whenever, whenever somebody sees me they're like oh oh that's what you look like mm. you look like a wigger from the 90s who never fucking uh decided to can you say that word anymore i probably not to uh to put on adult clothes you know so we're gonna get a man in there to uh, deliver this stuff and uh he's got a lot of um cameras and 
time for that. Actually, he has no time. Check out Iron Bean Coffee because that's probably going to work out better for him. So, uh, what the fuck am I doing here? I continue to do my extra content with Deadbug and Ken Chungus on Patreon and, and Apple Plus there. Uh, also, Leroy Luna, my brother from Excuse Me, That's a Legal Podcast. Ken Chungus does True Crime Kent, Deadbug. Deadbug says on YouTube. Check them all out if you uh, if you want to turn this off. And you know I'm in a good spot. I'm all in with Dark Topic, and the rest just feels like checking in with friends. Speaking of check-ins with friends, I have some shout-outs from high-level support on Patreon. I'm sorry, I wish I could do everybody, but there's too many fucking people. <laughs> you know, Gina Akawi. I fucked that up for sure, but Gina Akawi, I've seen you for a long time. Thank you so much for the high-level support. Kelly Gonzalez, thank you so much, Kelly Gonzalez. Sandy Blazely, three women in a row. I'm hot as shit. Maybe I'm not as bad looking as I thought I was. Thank you, Sandy Blazely. Hope Sherry. Hope Sherry, thank you so much. It sounds like a woman as well. And Eli Green, maybe a dude, but probably gay. Thank you so much, Eli. And thank you for the high-level support. And thank you, everyone who supports and listens. And you know, it's all support. And I need it, being a guy who openly shits himself at any given time because somebody ate a bat or dropped a test tube a couple years ago in China because the people in Hong Kong were jumping too high and causing too many fucking rumblings in the earth of that communist system. Remember that? They were fucking, like, protesting, and all of a sudden we all got sick. What the fuck? (laughs) Nobody remembers that. There were protests in Hong Kong. (sighs) They were protesting against the government and suddenly everybody got sick and we got shut down. And now I have no immune system. <laughs> and I'm on acid, so I, it doesn't matter. Whatever the fuck I've been saying, I can't be held accountable. Until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you so much. I'll be back real soon. Mm-hmm.